Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, 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 how's everybody doing? And Patrick from What Did You Play This Week production. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on, Patrick. All right, so this week we're going to be talking about Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Awesome game. Yeah, this is uh, one going back a bit, although Indie Board and Cards has continued to release expansions for it, so they're keeping it fairly fresh. We're going to focus mostly on the core game today, that we will discuss some of the expansions and our feelings on them as well. Absolutely, and this continues our series of... Well, it doesn't really continue our series because normally we have people on who aren't huge fans of co-op games talking about their favorite co-op game. In this case, we have a fan of co-op games talking about his favorite co-op. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of known as a co-op guy. So what is it about co-op games that keeps bringing you back? I think part of it is just, you know, my play group. You know, I've always enjoyed playing games with my wife and son, and I think co-ops work better with a family. And I enjoy the challenge that a co-op brings as much as I enjoy uh, beating my opponent. So I find the challenge of beating the game and winning, you know, against the fire equally enjoyable. So as long as the theme attracts me and the, and the challenge of the play it, it works, uh, I'm happy with the game. Wait, Patrick, you're, you're saying you don't like playing with your children and crushing them mercilessly and making them cry and being like, hey, want to play again? No, I don't. That, that's, that's not your, your regular way? <laughs> no, I'm a good dad. <laughs> nice job. Nice job. <laughs> now, when playing co-ops, do you tend to play where the difficulty is easier or harder? Or do, do you like that huge challenge? Do you like to lose 75% of the time? Or are you one that likes to win more than you lose? Or you like it kind of in the middle? I like to lose a lot. I'm I'm okay with the harder roles. I don't generally, even when I break out a game, set it to, to, to whatever entry level, you know. Uh, I'll, I'll start it off at normal whenever I even start learning a game. I remember I remember when I got Forbidden Desert and just, just hated that game. <laughs> for the longest time uh, my just, first plays of that were really rough too yeah but then when you finally beat it you know it was like it was great it was pretty exciting but man it took forever to beat that game it's funny because steve and i argued about this last week and he had that as one of his top points that it was such a hard game and i'll be honest i've won that game like 75 80 percent of the time and i have no idea why hmm. probably because i do prefer to start on easier levels and work my way up okay. and since i'm playing with my kids i've never gotten much past normal mm -hmm. but yeah i don't know maybe i just get super lucky and the storm just gets caught in the corner every time maybe but yeah i've only think i've only played that one with adults so i've always played it at normal or harder yeah, I've, I've, I've lost Desert several times, but you, you're right, Peter. Sometimes the storm does just get in that corner, and then <laughs> you can just run away with the game. It's no problem mm -hmm. whatsoever. Definitely, yeah, definitely. All right, Patrick. Well, we'll get some more information on you at the end of the podcast, okay. on you and what you're up to, and more about your podcast and your network, because I know you've got lots of people on the podcast. It's sure. not just you. right? So we'll get some more information on that. But first, let's get into Flashpoint. Yeah, so Peter, before we get into our thoughts on the game, why don't you talk about the theme a little bit? As you could probably guess by the name, Flashpoint Fire Rescue, we are rescuing people from a fire. 
And that is basically the theme of it. We're all firefighters and we're working together to rescue as many people as we can. The goal of the game is to rescue seven, but I'll let Mike get into that in his rules explanation. So Mike, take it away with the rules. So the rules are pretty straightforward. Each player has uh, four actions, so a player takes four actions, although they can take less and save up to four actions for a future turn. And actions are moving, opening doors, breaking down walls, and probably most importantly, putting out the fires and helping victims escape from the building. After you've taken your up to four actions, again, you can save some, Then you will roll for the fire. The board has uh, columns denoted by eight-sided dice numbers and rows denoted by six-sided dice numbers. So you roll both and you cross-index and find out where the fire goes. Uh, You might just put smoke down. You might put fire down. And potentially if you hit a spot that already has fire, you get an explosion and the fire spreads much more quickly. That's about it for the base game. You have to rescue seven people before four of them are overcome by the fire. Now, that's the family game. If you go into the full game, you get a few more things. You have an ambulance that you have to specifically take the people to, and you can move the ambulance around and even ride on it. You have a fire truck you can ride around and that can shoot a water cannon into the house to put out fires more quickly. And you also have specialist roles that give you limitations on what you can do sometimes, but also bonuses to what you can do, making you more specialized at one thing or another. And that's about it. Those are the the core mechanics of the game. So, for those of you who have never joined us before, welcome. And we're going to talk about our top five things about the game next. Starting with our number five, which is the least important thing for us, personally. And going to our number one, which we think is the most important thing you need to know about the game. So, Patrick, as our guest, why don't you get us started? What's your number five? Sure. You already talked about the dice rolling in between turns. And I think this causes the game to be a bit random. It's a bit unpredictable, but it... It's also representational of, of fire, right? You know, you really can't predict how fire is going to happen. If you don't like randomness in a game, you may not like this game. This may be a little <laughs> bit of a turnoff for you. But having played this, is probably my second or third most played game. And having played it, and, and we might talk about character roles a little bit later on, we've come to learn to deal with that. And and we might have special roles. We, we might know to pick certain roles, and plan for that unpredictability. You know, so so having never played it before, you don't know, know how to deal with that, and that'll be a problem. But as you move forward with multiple plays, you know that's going to happen. You, just, you know, say, okay, we may, maybe we should have somebody in this side of the house in case fire breaks out, and we'll have somebody over here in case fire breaks out, and this person's going to save victims, and this person's going to be over here doing this, and that way you have everything covered. So... It's part of the game as a negative, but it's also part of the game as a positive. So it's just something you got to deal with. All right, Mike, I was going to toss it to you, but I'm going to take over right here because my number five is the dice rolling to add smoke to the board. Oh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a little bit of a mix for me as well. As Patrick said, it is good because you need some kind of randomizer. My negative part to it, though, is sometimes it takes a little while to figure out exactly when you're cross-referencing two numbers. The nice part they've done with their graphic design is they put the numbers on each individual space. It has the numbers, but it does sometimes take a little while to figure out exactly where you need to put that smoke. Not terribly long, Mm -hmm. but at the same time for a game that plays so quickly, 
not having to roll two dice and, and cross-reference would have been a little bit easier. This also leads to, as Patrick said, more randomness. And the randomness for me, though, comes in, if you have a place that already has smoke, it'll turn to fire. And every adjacent place with smoke will then also turn into fire. But if there is no smoke there, then it will add a smoke counter. And if there's already fire there, then it will outbreak. So it'll go to all the adjacent spots. So there's a lot of variance in the outcomes, as well as if there's a hotspot there, it will not only outbreak, but then it'll add another hotspot to the board. Mm -hmm. So you really have a lot of variance in outcomes for a single roll. Yes. And you're talking about a 1 in 48 chance of getting any individual spot. So the more smoke there is on the board, the more chance there is that it'll turn into fire. But if you've done a good job of suppressing the fire then it's really not going to do a lot to affect your game at that point. So a little bit of a mix for me. I do think it is a neat, clever system, but I also do think it can lead to a lot of variance in the game as well. So that's my number five is the rolling dice to add smoke to the board. Well, I think you both are being a little nice. That one's a little bit higher on my list. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll talk about it later. My number five is a big pro, and that is the Hidden Victims. So I didn't mention this in the rules explanation, but in the base setup, you have 15 POIs and five of them are nothing. It's like a false alarm. And then 10 of them are actual victims you have to save. But these are face down on the board until you actually move into their space, not just enter the room, but actually move into their space because, you know, there's smoke and all that stuff. And I love this for two reasons. Number one, I love the theme of it. That you think you hear a sound, you think you hear a voice crying out, you think you hear a squeak, but then you get in there and it was just a TV that was on or was nothing. And, you know, you've trapped yourself in like some burning corner of the house to try to rescue somebody and nobody's there. I love that. On top of it, though, it's just really fun and kind of adds to the tension because sometimes you'll see there's some victim like way off in a corner with a lot of danger around them, and you have to make the tactical choice of whether you want to get over there or not, and, you know, you're hoping that it's nobody, and when it's not, you breathe a sigh of relief, and when it is, you feel terrible, like you failed your job, and you let someone die just because you you made the hard choice of it not being possible to get over there in time. So I really enjoy the, the kind of tension and fun and theme of the victims being hidden, and some of them not being victims at all. Yeah, that's great. I got I got to interject. So <laughs> when I was in college, somebody had a had a mannequin that used to dress up in their in their window that you'd always walk by and see like in the window. So we always <laughs> joke that those are <laughs> like hilarious. mannequins that that are just happen to be lying around that somebody had dressed up in the window, you know, like in their room. And we also joke that this is actually a meth lab that's blown up in an explosion. <laughs> we, we're really horrible when we play this. Wow. Well, that, yeah, that, because that's what all the hazmats are. We haven't talked about those yet, but there's yes, there's all these chemicals that, <laughs> that, has, just, that happen to be lying around this house that might blow yeah, up. Yeah, it's, 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 it's Walter White, you know, Breaking <laughs> yes. Bad, and you just, yeah, it's, you're it's, coming it's, in it's, to help out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Breaking Bad, the board game. Yeah, it's pretty. All right, well, so so besides uh, Crystal Meth, what is your number four, Patrick? <laughs> Peter kind of kind of mentioned it. The hotspots, I think they're a little wonky. I think it's called a flashover. So when you hit one, you roll another dice, set a dice, and then you put another one out. And how many are you supposed to have? And you're supposed to keep track of only having so many of them. And, and it's based on the, the you know whether you're playing an advanced level or veteran level. And that's probably the, the one part of the game after as many plays as I've had that I still cannot keep track of is, is the hotspots. And tragic events, if we want to talk about it now or later, try to fix that by removing those and replacing them with a deck of cards. But that thing I've 
I, you know, I just do it. I just, I do it the way I want to do it. I don't know if I do it right or not. Um, <laughs> it's just, I do it the way I want to do it and make the game fun. That's probably the one part of the game that I just sort of just, let's just do it the way I want to do it. However I can remember it, I don't bother to dig through the rules to make sure I'm doing it right. And we just move, move through it and get it done. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. And that is not my number four. But as a game designer, for me, it doesn't bother me that you're doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, some people have a problem with house rules. I personally say whatever makes your game better, whatever way you want to play it, is the way you should play it. Yeah. The goal as a game designer is to make games that are fun for people. And if they're not fun for people the way they've you've designed it, then if they want to play it the way that makes it the most fun, absolutely go for it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think also fudging rules is happily something that's a lot easier and kind of not a big deal in a co-op game. You know, like Spirit Island has the rule that if you mess up something, just keep going. Don't worry about rewinding back. Because in a co-op, it's not like... <laughs> right. You know, I, I accidentally cheated and I now have 20 more points than everybody else in this competitive game and I win through total BS, you know. Right. In a co-op, you just you just move on and who cares? So yeah, I mean if if the hot spot, you know, if you're like, ah, I don't know if I did that right, who cares? Just move on. It, yeah. It's it's yeah. totally fine. Alright, so Peter, what's your number four? So my number four is that the game scales well. And this is on two fronts. I think it scales well both for number of players and from the family game to the full game. I think it does a really good job of figuring out what the difficulty is supposed to be. And because everybody kind of takes their own turn and then bad things happen, and this is actually going to be our design discussion today, different ways of working enemy AI. But because the way it works is after players take their turns, a bad thing happens, I think it doesn't really matter the number of players. Yes, you're going to have more coverage and things like that, but it's not games like Pandemic where you have this hand of cards and that you're trying to collect something. Really, everyone is trying to get the POIs, which become victims, out of the house. And so because of that, it doesn't really matter whether I'm taking my turn and then somebody else takes their turn and then it's back to me or whether there's four people before my turn again. Either way, I think it doesn't really change the difficulty too much. So I think it scales well that way. And then if you've listened to our shows in the past, you know I played the family game for most of my career with this game. Mm -hmm. I've had this game for whenever it came out. I've been playing it since until this year. I've played it always with the family rules. This is the first time I've ever advanced past that. And it played just fine. I played it mostly with younger children, and the kids were having fun with it as it was. And to be honest, after playing with the more advanced rules, they're not that much more advanced. No. But the family game is a great intro to the game. And so I think that it does a really good job in scaling both in difficulty, number of players, and in scaling in complexity as well. Yeah. I agree with that 100%. My number four is a little bit of a mix, and that's the system of being able to save action points for a future turn, as I mentioned in the rule description. And the reason it's mixed is, on the pro side, I like the smoothness of gameplay, that I don't have to like kind of search for something to do with my last few actions if nothing immediately presents itself. I can just be like, all right, I'll roll the dice and somebody else take a turn. And have, like, a really big turn the next time. And also, it is really exciting and fun to have those huge turns where you have, like, seven or eight actions saved up and you just burst out and do a ton of stuff. On the negative side, though, I do feel like it's almost too easy. 
And speaking as an adult playing the game, and like when I'm playing with other adults and not playing with my kid, it is very often to almost always the best decision to save some of your action points unless you can directly affect either a, a play, you know, a, a person that you're trying to save or a uh, fire on the mm-hmm. board that you can reach. Right. Yeah. Um, pretty much all the rest of the time, it's like automatic that you just save your actions. And it feels a little weird. Like I almost wish that they had instead forced me to use like maybe all but my last action so that I would have to make tougher choices. Cause as an example, I pretty much never end my turn next to a fire. Cause why should I, I'll just save that movement point and then move in next turn and have extra actions to put it out, which means that I'm almost never in danger of getting knocked out and going back to the ambulance as a firefighter. Yeah, I, I feel like it's it's a nice choice for smoothness, but does take away some of the tension and the hard choices of the game, because I don't have to make the hard choices. I can just put them off until next turn. Right. That's kind of got, goes back to my first point of, I'm going to hang out here in case fire breaks out. I'll have some extra actions. I can put the fire out if it appears next to me. Yeah, so like tactically it works out okay. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, right. it's maybe not as exciting. Right. Yeah. All right, Patrick, how about your number three? Well, I'm, it's just kind of a, a broad one, but there's we've already <laughs> talked about it. There are, let's see, uh, one, two, three, four, five expansions, six expansions to this game. <laughs> and it's not... 85 expansions. Yeah, it's not just <laughs> the boards, because, you know, I'm not just talking about like the, you know, boards add more neat stuff, like the two-story thing. But they just add a lot of just little neat things that um, sometimes you don't get in expansions. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen them all, like like little tokens that just for, for – and I'm talking about things for like new players. Like my wife's not a super experienced gamer, but she really likes these action point tokens. The, yeah, the, the, yeah, absolutely. The ones that flip They're over, great. that help her remember I've used up my turn. And then you have the second green ones that came with the base game that help you to remember that you save tokens. And then there's some extra tokens, like if you're the fire captain, you have these little walkie-talkie tokens that help you remember your ability to move somebody an extra turn. But if you're the firefighter guy, then you've got little hose tokens that, that are specific to your special ability. And those are awesome. And, you know, they're just, they came out, I don't remember which set they came out with, but all those special little actions, you know. And then they came out with, like, figures that match all the characters and, you know, and then all the maps, you know. They came out with lots of neat things, too, like the two-story editions. And, you know, I think some of the later ones got a little wonky, like the ship. You know, they went a little too far, probably. <laughs> um, but, you know, just all those little all those little special touches, I think, are fun and make the game more playable. They weren't expansions just for the sake of expansions. They they actually did improve the game. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. Because I was using, when I was just playing uh, yesterday, I was using the, the little fire extinguisher icons for the, the Caps, Caps Firefighter, whatever yes. he's called. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they, they were super useful. And, and it is interesting because it, it's I think it's pretty rare for expansions to improve the the ease of play and functionality of the core game. Like, even if you don't use a single expansion element, it makes the game easier to play and smoother to play. So, nice call. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And some of these games, like Eldritch Horror has a million tokens, and it makes the game more fiddly, but I feel like here it doesn't. It, all the tokens have their own specific purpose, and they add to simplicity, as you guys both said, of gameplay, rather than making it, oh gosh, i got to dig through 10 million tokens to figure out the one I actually mm-hmm, need mm-hmm. to do this next action or whatever. All right, so Peter, what's your number three? All right, I actually went with my number three is the four actions and then a bad thing turn structure. 
And this has become popularized by Pandemic, Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert. They all do this. It's a very popular turn structure, partially because of what I said last time is in scaling. It works really well because if there's a bad thing that happens after each person takes their turn, then it's easy to scale for the number of players better, I think. Now, the twist on this, which you guys have also mentioned, is that you can save actions from one turn to the other. So I thought that was a really neat twist on the system. I agree with Mike. If you're an advanced gamer, it's going to be pretty easy to figure out when you should save those and when you shouldn't. But to some degree, it also makes the game get rid of those frustrating moments. And I know you mentioned this as well, Mike. And so I know there are some games where it's like you feel like you have to do something with that last action. You don't want to spend your action to pass because it's a wasted action. You don't necessarily want to go somewhere, though. And sometimes that can lead to hard decisions, too. But I agree. Maybe they could have limited it to one or two per player. But I think the nice thing they've done with it, and we haven't gotten to this yet, though, some of the special characters actually use those saved actions to do things. And so I think it just gives them another knob to turn with their complexity a little bit without really making the game that much more complex. So my number three goes off. You just mentioned the special characters, and Patrick, you'd also mentioned them too. So yeah, mine is the specialists. And this is a pro for me. I really like how these are handled. I'm a big sucker for having negative abilities to go with my positive abilities. Mm -hmm. You know, if anybody's played Salvation Road, they know that's like a major, major part of the gameplay. So yeah, here, a lot of them, like the, the medic, which is one of the core game, like main players, is amazing at rescuing people, but terrible at fighting the fire. Yeah. You know, and, and the firefighter guy moves slower, so if he does not get into position to use his free firefighting actions, he's actually doing less per turn than somebody else. So I really like that. I like that it's kind of tough to switch, but you do have the option, so your your role within the team can evolve over the game. Like, if you're the hazmat specialist early, once you get rid of all the hazmats, clearly you're going to be able to change into something else. So I, I like the way that was handled all together. The only negative I have, it's still I'm still calling it a pro, but it's a small negative, is that I do think even looking at the expansion guys, I still feel like the there are like three or four specialists in the core game that have been consistently the best, even as they've come out with expansions, and I still pretty much always use them. So I don't feel like there's anything forcing me or encouraging me to broaden my horizons and try out some of the wonkier specialists. Like they have one of the guys, I forget which expansion he was in, but like he can like move smoke towards windows. Hmm. And that's, that's kind of awesome. But also I'm like, eh, all right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like, it doesn't seem like it's going to be as universally useful as three free firefighting actions every turn. Right. So I, I don't think they've necessarily gotten like the balance of the specialist perfect as expansions have come out. But that being said, I, I love the specialists themselves. I like switching between them. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. Well, well, j- jump right in, Patrick. You're number two. Oh, my my number two is just, I think this game is super thematic. You feel like you're fighting a fire. There is this raging fire that is just out of control, and you're doing everything you can just to fight that fire and, and get these people out of there. And you don't know where it's going to appear and what you're going to do <laughs> next, and... It's just great. It has it has stand up moments. It has dice rolls, you know, that make it exciting. That's why we enjoy it. That's why it is fun. You feel like a firefighter fighting a fire and saving people in this game. It captures that in a in a in a board game really successfully. So that's that's my number four. No, that's that's absolutely true. I I agree with that one hundred percent. 
That didn't make my list, but it really should have. You're right. This yeah. game does such an amazing job of capturing the theme. You know, we sometimes get so focused on mechanics that we forget that there can be strong themes in these mostly Euro-based co-op games. But the theme does come out so strongly in this game. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit just because I, sh- I wish it was on my list now. I feel like I've, I've neglected this point, And I really do think it's one of the strongest points of the game. When I'm playing with my son, and I almost put this in earlier, my daughter, when that smoke pops up somewhere, and especially if it pops up like either on the space of one of the firefighters or right next to it, it's like, what are you doing? Are you smoking while you're sitting here trying to clean the, you know, put out this fire? Why are you starting fires wherever you want? And it always seems to happen that it always happens next to the same person. Or maybe there's a POI in the corner somewhere and like smoke starts coming out of that area. And it's like, oh, we figured out who the culprit is here. We, you know, we figured out who's starting all the fires. So it does lead to those really cool moments. And you wouldn't think it would with just, you know, rolling two dice. But we always have a story to tell when we're playing this right. game. Our our ferret POI, which is one of the expansions, is is Gilhova's pet ferret. You know, and and why is there a why is it so hard to rescue a cat? You know, I mean, you've got to come up with stories to explain it. <laughs> yeah, and I was gonna say this really is the like the slam dunk for theme because so many games to achieve theme just pile on Chrome after Chrome mm-hmm. and like mechanics and card after card and. You can play this game. If you play the family game, you have basically no cards whatsoever. It's just a board and some dice and some actions, and it's incredibly simple, but still the theme shines through. So yeah. it really is a, yeah, you're right. This should have been on my list too, and it wasn't. So, Patrick, you you win. All right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've won the top five list. We've never actually had a winner before, but I think you might have won. That right. might have, hey. maybe even should have been my number one. Okay. But moving along, I'm going to go back to something we've said before, which is, I think there is very good variety in the game, even in the base game with all the characters. Mike's covered it really well. There aren't that many actions in the game, and it doesn't seem like there'd be too many knobs to turn to make the variety good, but they do such a good job. Just things like the action tokens and figuring out ways to do this. And I love, and I'm going to contradict Mike here because people know Mike and I actually disagree (laughs) on this. I think in a co-op game, not all characters need to be balanced. Because I don't always want to take the best character. Sometimes I want to challenge myself, and that's not by increasing difficulty. If I'm playing with my kids, whatever else, maybe I'll take one of the characters that I think is a little bit weaker and try to make it work. So Mike and I are in a little disagreement here. I don't necessarily think characters need to be 100% balanced in a co-op game. Now, it's different if you have four characters, right? Like Then I want them all to be balanced because you're not going to have a choice in a four-player game. But if there are... 8, 10, 12, 14, 16 characters to choose from, and one or two of them are a little stronger and one or two of them are a little weaker, that doesn't bother me at all because that's just a way to vary difficulty and vary your skill level with who you play with. But getting back to my original point, I do like the fact that they have the actions that they mess with. So one character, their special abilities, they just have five actions. Another one may only have three actions, but they do really cool stuff if you can get them in the right position. Mm -hmm. So... I love how they have so many little things to mess with, even though it's a very simple, straightforward game. So that's my number two. I really love the variety in characters in the game, and I really do think they did a great job of working, doing a lot with a little. Agreed. Nice. So my number two is a big pro, and that's, uh, I'm going to call it the evolving geography of the house. First of all, uh, people already mentioned that 
if you'll get like smoke on the board and it doesn't have any immediate effect but if smoke is ever adjacent to fire it becomes fire as well and you can get this cascading kind of wall of fire suddenly popping up and i just love the thematic feeling of that like seeing which parts of the house are more dangerous or less dangerous because walls block fire mm-hmm. as explosions happen you'll get this very thematic feel of like an entire room being on fire but it's not expanding to the rest of the house yet until that wall crumbles the walls themselves are fantastic if a wall takes two damage, it becomes an open doorway, which can actually be helpful for you sometimes. But then it also uh, is a loss condition to have too many walls uh, break down in the house and the entire house crumbles. And you can actually chop walls down, which is a great tactical choice. Do I bring myself closer to losing to give me a better entryway to parts of the house? So I think just like the way the the map itself feels and the way the the fire just with very simple mechanics and a very simple role the way the fire moves organically and and the house kind of evolves and changes over the course of the game i really really love all of that yeah i love the uh, bathroom that's always on fire you know it's just yes. like four by four square <laughs> it's just full of fire and I'm like well we can leave it alone because it's it's a closed door and it's just it'll just burn itself out we'll, we'll be fine <laughs> well and, and i love that uh <laughs> I always make a joke about this in the game. I love that uh, in the in the the base family game setup, like the suggested setup for your first game. I think they have two of the three POIs on toilets, you know, and, and I'm sure it's because they're supposed to be like hiding in the bathroom for safety. But I always just imagine that they're like totally unaware that a fire is yeah. happening. They're just like, Play, you know, playing doing a, their they're business. Playing a, they're playing an app on their toilet and didn't even totally yeah, realize exactly. that the house is on it's fire. Like, uh, I finished an hour ago, but I'm really into this game right now. <laughs> And it's funny because whenever there's uh, smoke pops up in one of the bathrooms, I always start singing smoking in the bathroom, oh, even geez. though it's smoking in the boys' room. <laughs> My kids don't know the difference. I always start singing smoking in the bathroom. <laughs> that is great. Oh, All right. So, Patrick, big moment. What's your number one? You guys have already talked about the characters, but uh, I, I, I also put the characters here as, as my number one because I, I just really enjoy playing all the different characters. I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the ones that we haven't talked about yet. One of the basic ones that, that I think uh, Mike talked about already was the, I think the fire op, fire truck guy is important, is one that I always think is kind of important to have because he's really good at putting out fires. But one of the things I did in, in prep here is, you know, I, I played a lot more games than I probably normally did in a shorter period of time. So I ended up playing a six-player game. And one of the rules about that game is you can't have anybody in your quadrant when you're shooting huh. the gun, right? When you're playing with six yeah, players, yeah. Having, yeah, yeah. having no one in, in a quadrant is nearly impossible. So I was like, this job's horrible in a six-player game where it's a lot easier to be in a in a three-player game. Also, I just wanted to put, as a side note, I, I uh, we had a block party and they and they had a fire engine pulled up to our neighborhood and it had a fire gun on it and I saw the controller for it and I tweeted out, a, or, I don't know, I, I think Instagram a picture and said, now I know why this gun takes four action points to run <laughs> because it's like the controller was like 8,000 knobs. It was like, <laughs> it was incredible how complicated that thing looked to run. Anyway, another fun character that they added later was the dog. So, you know, of course, we play this with my family and my wife loves the dog. But the dog's actually really complicated. It gets 12 action points. What? But it can only, only like, run in and, like, grab people. It, It can't go through smoke or fire. And it can go through, like, single holes. But not with people. It just has all these really fun little rules that are huh. really specific to the dog. So it kind of goes to what Peter was saying. It's like you know, it has it has challenges 
but it also has really good benefits. So, uh, again, but it doesn't work like on the two-story because it can't go upstairs or something stupid. I forget. <laughs> but, you know, so. Well, that's not stupid. It can't climb a ladder. Right. It can't so, go up the ladder. I mean, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But, you know. Maybe your dog can't climb yeah, a ladder. Yeah, yeah. But. But uh, but it can take the elevator. So anyway, um, anyway, I just think I think all the roles are pretty neat. And it, it you know one of the fun ones. I don't know if it's a super fun one to play, but I'm glad it added later the structural engineer because that was always yes. a problem. He was like, oh gosh, we're running out of black cubes. What can you do? Nothing. Well, hey, we added the structural engineer so that somebody could go out and change their gear. Which which is also one of my points here that they added that ability. That that's something that a lot of games don't have is the ability to change your roles. And I wanted to kind of wrap that into this is that I think that that is really just a cool thing that you can go out and put on new gear and come back and I'm like, "Hey, I'm the I'm the structural engineer now. I'm going to go out and and try to fix these holes before the building collapses because that's a loss condition and you have to you have to have a way to mitigate it that wasn't in the game before." Yeah, and that just makes a lot of sense too, mm-hmm. right? You're calling in for reinforcement. It takes some of your actions yeah. to call them in. But I love the tactical flexibility it gives you. I know Mike mentioned it and you mentioned yeah. it, but I, I just really love what that adds to the game. I don't do it every game, no. but when I do it, I feel like, wow, that was really cool. Right. I'm glad I was able to do that. It ties into the theme. It makes sense. It's not just mm-hmm. it's not just something they threw it. I mean, if they, maybe they threw it in there, but it, it makes sense that you can do it. No, definitely. Peter, you're number one. My number one is that this game is so expandable. We talked about how they've done a lot with a little. They added more maps. They added more characters. All the expansions you can do, it reminds me of one of my other favorite games, which is Power Grid, Mm -hmm. where each map does something different. And it doesn't add a lot of rules complexity. And the one thing that expansions, I typically hate expansions, I'll be honest, because they add complexity, they add more rules, Mm -hmm. they add more stuff to do. But here, each map has its own little bit of complexity that it adds, but you don't need to remember it when you're playing the next map. Right. You know, it's not building complexity on top of itself. It's not adding a second map next to the main map, so now I've got twice as much stuff to do, mm-hmm. and the game tw- takes twice as long. Really, each map provides its own tactical challenges, but at the same time, keeps the game very fun and interesting. And I'll be honest, this game was probably in my top 20 or 30 co-ops before I played with the Tragic Events expansion. And the way the Tragic Events expansion works is it takes out the hotspots and replaces it with a card deck and also adds events to the game. So sometimes they're positive events, sometimes they're negative events. And that game took it to certainly one of my top 10 co-ops of all time. I mean, I really love what it did to the game. The hotspots were always one of my biggest challenges with the game. Probably why I didn't play past the family game for such a long time. I just was confused by them, as you said, Patrick. And I didn't want to play with them in my game. But I almost view it as a necessary expansion for someone who wants to get the base game. Certainly buy the base game, play the family game for a while. But when you're ready to move up, I think Tragic Events is... Definitely, no matter what map I'm playing on, my preferred way to play. And so, I mean, you can start to hear me gush now. My number one is what the expansions add to the game. You get new characters, you get a bunch of new stuff, but you don't have to learn it all at once. Mm -hmm. You're learning what you're going to play with for that game. So I just think they did such a good job making such a simple game so expandable. Here, here. All right, so my number one 
is not gushing. Oh. It's a big con, so I'm going to end on a very negative note. But it's stuff you've all already mentioned before, so I'll try to put some new stuff on it. And that is that it is the hot spots, it is the random die rolling, it is the swinginess, and it's something we talked about in the uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts battle review. It, one of my biggest, biggest pet peeves, and I'm like, just don't do this, this is a major design no-no. Uneven ramp up to difficulty. I feel like it is a, a core requirement of a good co-op to have the game become more and more difficult and more and more tense and have some kind of time pressure on you as the game goes on. And this game does not have that. Even on mm-hmm. the highest difficulty settings in the base game, as and again, this is already mentioned, but the hotspots, you might never roll them. And that's that's all that it is. There is nothing else making the game harder as the game goes on besides more hotspots being added to the board. And if you just and it's not that unlikely you won't roll any hotspots. If you don't, nothing really gets worse. And the the thing that really it's similar to Peter, that really put me off on this game a little bit when I was playing it previously, is that the game is fun when you are running into burning rooms to save people, when you are putting yourself in harm's way and the fire is so prevalent that you can't avoid it. But if I am playing to win, every time the best strategy is to almost completely extinguish all fire in the house. And it's between the deck gun and like the, the, the firefighter with three free firefighting actions mm-hmm. and that kind of thing, it's not that hard to do. And then, like, one of these switches to the medic, and you can get everybody out, and it's super easy, and it's very repetitive, and it's really it was really frustrating for me, because it was like, the game was losing the theme and losing the fun if I played to win, so I had to force myself to play poorly, and leave fires burning, and rescue people before putting out the fires, for the game to kind of be the best it could be. So that's why it's my number one. If you're playing with the core game, and it's it's a big con. Like, it literally made me feel like I didn't want to play the game that much anymore at family or harder difficulty because it was just so swingy. And if stuff just didn't happen, it'd be like this boring game of put out all the fires and rescue all the people. I'd be like, I mean, <laughs> sometimes I'd be like, why is the fire still around? Like, literally, there's no flame or smoke on the entire board. Like, didn't I win? Didn't I save the house? Like, <laughs> can I just stop the game now and win? Could that be an alternate victory condition? Now, I will back up what Peter said. I know, Patrick, you you didn't have as positive an experience with these, but the Tragic Events deck has not 100% fixed this, but like 90% fixed this problem for me and fixed the ramp-up issue for me. And just to go into a little more detail on that, so you get this Accelerate card, and you don't reshuffle the deck until you draw it, so you are going to draw it consistently throughout the game. And every time you do, you add a flare-up card that basically doubles the amount of fire you're placing for that turn. And each time you draw a flare-up card, you also add another flare-up card to the discard pile. And eventually, kind of like with the hotspots, you reach a max number of flare-ups in the deck. So it does kind of reach a saturation point of the difficulty progressing. But I found by that point that you're getting so many darn fires that, again, it it, it achieves what I want. That I cannot win the game just by putting out all the fires. Mm -hmm. I need to be rescuing people consistently. It does exactly what I wanted it to do. Now, I will say it's still pretty darn swingy because if the first card you draw is an accelerate instead of the last card you draw being an Accelerate, that is a ridiculous difference in the difficulty of that game right right there. Just because of, like, how the cards... You know, so I'd almost want to play with a variant where, like, I shuffle the Accelerate in the bottom half of the deck or something along those lines. But that being said, I would, just like Peter said, I would strongly, strongly recommend once you... If you enjoy the game and want to keep playing it but are finding some of these swinginess issues all three of us have mentioned... 
I think Tragic Events is the closest the game gets to fixing it. It's not a perfect fix, but for me, especially combined with the fun events, which are goofy, thematic fun, I think it's a definitely a almost required buy once you've played the game a bunch. Yeah. Although, I, Patrick, I, I know you would disagree. But. No, no. I, I think the reason I had an issue with it, and I only played it with once, was it was a learning game for most of the people. And I think that was a challenge. I think sure, I think sure. I think it's not good for your first game with most people learning it because it, it's a little complicated. Yeah, no, I agree. And I will say, just in defense of the game, that Mike can find the most unfun <laughs> way to play any game <laughs> and just go for the win. We played Lord of the Rings game the other day, <laughs> and he made these decks that made the game so unfun because <laughs> they were so powerful. Basically, right off of the start. It's like, why are we playing the two turns in? We're like, there's no challenges left on the board. This is the most unfun thing that's ever happened. So, yeah, if you want to have fun playing game, don't play with Mike. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Or now that I know that now. <laughs> All right, I, I, I guess I'll add that a little bit. <laughs> you know, he's just a min-maxer. It, it's not that, that it's a bad thing. I mean, certainly you need to prepare for players like that in your game but certainly not everybody's going to have that experience that's for sure sure no I, I i perfectly understand what he's getting at though i mean i've i've had games like that where where we've just we've just wiped the game it's just you know they're they're definitely not as fun but you can't control that in any co-op I mean, we're not just talking about flashpoint we're talking about any game i've played games of pandemic where you've gotten two epidemics in a row that can happen mathematically and you can get horrible games where you've had where you lose on the first draw <laughs> and i've had games where you've done really well and and you know so as a game designer you can't control the odds that that those things are going to happen right so yeah i mean well i i disagree a little bit though because you know just to compare the two games you mentioned uh pandemic every time you go through the deck you are drawing whatever you know whatever difficulty you're playing at like five or six or seven you know and yes where they come out is going to be a little bit harder a little bit easier yeah but again with with the hot spots the way they're set up in the base game you might play the game and literally never roll a hot spot that's and true the only way additional hot spots get placed is by rolling those initial hot spots and there aren't that many of them like you have a very low probability of rolling hot spots for the majority of the game so i, th- I think that was like I, th- I think the the tragic events deck is fine; it does not have this problem. But I think that the way they designed the hotspots had a major design flaw. Yeah, I you see know, what you're like saying. It was, it was just a big miss because you can you can it, it yes you you have a much higher likelihood of crazy swingy games in Flashpoint with the base rules than you do in something like Pandemic. Right. Well, when you think about it, there's three out of forty eight spots that are hotspots. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's it's absurd. Well, no, I, I think I think you might start with four or five. Well, it depends on what level you're starting at. You could have yeah, six. Yeah. So, so it, it's a slightly higher likelihood, mm-hmm. but still, it's it's a pretty low percentage. Yeah. Well, anyway, we're we're getting off track. Uh, Patrick, <laughs> what would be your overall your overall thoughts on Flashpoint? Just to close out the discussion, your recommendations, that kind of thing. Oh well, I, I own everything Flashpoint, so it's my third <laughs> most played game, fourth most somewhere up there. I love it. Play it all the time. You know, it's not perfect. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it it just works. It works really well. You know, we were talking about uh, I, I took it and, and flew up to my family's and I played it with my sister who doesn't play any sort of games. And she got on it right away and, and, and it clicked with her. So and I still play it with my heavy game group when we played with the six of us. And the heavy gamers enjoyed it. So I just think it, it works really well. I still we just enjoy it. 
It's just an enjoyable game. No, it's not perfect, but it's just fun to play. Nice. And I'm going to echo Patrick's sentiments there. I do think, for me, I would never play again without Tragic Events, but that's just because how I like to play it. This game is a lot of Euro mechanics, a lot of pandemic-like simplicity, but you can add that theme in with these Tragic Event cards. So I think it's going to appeal to a broader audience than most games would because you can add and change the complexity. So I really do think it is a kind of a go-to, almost a necessary cooperative game for everybody to try out. And if you don't like the base game, I would certainly recommend adding Tragic Events. If you love the base game as is, just stick with that and maybe add in expansions with different buildings and things. Mm -hmm. So that'll expand your difficulty. So I think there's a lot of ways to play this game. I don't know many people that wouldn't like this game. And so I almost think it's a collection essential. Yeah, and even though I ended on a negative point, I- I'm pretty much right with you all. I think this this and Forbidden Island are probably my two top go-to cooperative games for new gamers. I think I slightly prefer Forbidden Island, but I have to respect that Flashpoint has way more variety and expandability than Forbidden Island if you just stick to Forbidden Island and don't kind of expand to the rest of the Pandemic and Forbidden series. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think this is a great game. I think Tragic Events fixes some of the problems in the advanced game for me, but I still love the family game playing with my my son or my wife because, you know, they aren't min-maxing. They're not trying to put out every fire. They are just running straight through the fire to get to people, which keeps the game more fun for me because it's keeping the tension up for me as well. So yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I think in general... Especially if you have some casual gamers you might be gaming with, uh, this is one that should be in your collection, and especially, I would say, with the Tragic Events expansion, if you enjoy it. Cool. And I didn't realize it plays up to six. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> I've played with four maximum. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I had never played it with six before either. That was a, that was a crazy game. But that's great. Like, I, I'm looking forward now to, you know, people say what co-ops are good for yeah. a lot of players. Mm-hmm. I haven't tried it yet, but I want to try it just so I can recommend it for higher player counts, hopefully, anyway. Yeah, it's a tight, it's a tight house. <laughs> it gets a little crowded. Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get into our design discussion. And this week we're going to be talking about just different ways to do player actions versus AI actions. So the kind of main categories I thought of is one player takes their actions and then bad things happen. And then everybody takes their actions and then bad things happen even worse. So I know there are other ways of doing it, but let's kind of just think of pros and cons of those two main systems. And then at the end, let's start branching out to other systems. So just to start off, I think talking about the all player actions happen and then all enemy actions happen, there's a bunch of potential pros there. First of all, it does allow simultaneous play like you might see in Spirit Island is a a major example. And I, I tend to really like simultaneous play. I think it allows for potentially more cooperation because you can actually talk to each other and do things in reaction to each other's actions in the moment. So I do tend to like that. Now, I'll follow that up with a con, though, in that I do think, as uh, Peter mentioned with Flashpoint, it's tougher to balance when you have all of the player turns and then all of the enemy actions at higher player counts. Because like when you're only playing with two people, less will get done relative to the enemy, and then you get like a middling enemy turn, and then when you go to really high player counts, and it can go both ways. Sometimes like four players all acting in a row 
gets too much accomplished and makes the game too much easier at higher player counts. Or on the flip side, sometimes having like four enemy activations in a row worth is too punishing and makes the game. So so I think I think it is much harder to balance the all players go, all AI go system of play, even though I do think it provides some kind of simultaneous benefits. Spirit Island sort of controls that by having the the fast and then the slow actions, right? So you've got the mountain guy that can only go on the slow speed. So that separates people into two halves, right, between the between the player and the AI. And uh, and Gloom, Gloomhaven's sort of the same way, right? You've got that in, initiative track, right? So people are going at different speeds, um, and, and maybe they kind of go first. You might go first, or the AI may go first. So that also controls it in kind of the same way is kind of how I was thinking in a similar manner, where you've got to sort of... It varies, though, from turn to turn. It's, I don't know if that's in the same sure. category or not, but those are two games that I I had written down in sort of that category when I was thinking of those. Yeah. Well, I, I do think Gloomhaven is something we'll have to talk about later because it is a little bit of a different thing. Mm-hmm. But Spirit Island, I I love Spirit Island. I think Spirit Island gets over the, the potential problem I said, mainly because of the separated player boards. Because by and large, the invaders are mostly doing stuff on your board and the majority of your actions are dealing with them. Mm-hmm. So it still sort of gets the the feel and the benefits of an I go you go kind of like turn based uh, system, but with actual simultaneous play. So yeah. I think Spirit Island is is one of the best at how they kind of structure their turn structure. So probably for me, I think it is in the like top three of games that have a all players go then all enemies go sort of system. I can't think of many others, so you'll have to to yeah. help me think of them because I'm not well, <laughs> I'm looking at my co-op shelf here. So, Well, thinking like uh, Eldritch Horror oh, okay. uh, has that kind of a system. That's another one. And there, I, I think that works okay because like the encounters are all individual. So yeah, I mean, people have different ways of making it not feel overwhelming or messing up the balance too much. You know, varying degrees of success. And I mean, I agree with all your points for both of you. And I do agree. Eldritch Horror does it in an interesting way. And so does Spirit Island, where basically every player is dealing with their own little fires. So rather than dealing with one big fire, they're dealing with individual fires. I think part of the problem we've had as designers working on this is we've had kind of a overwhelming board fires happening. And so we haven't really been able to figure that out. Although, with Salvation Road, we did exactly that. We put individual fires. Each of these locations is dealing with its own fires. And maybe two or three people are there, so it'll be just one fire for all of them to deal with. But it is scalable based on the number of players. So maybe that's the best way. Because I do think it's challenging to do all players do good things, and then you have to bring in a bunch of bad stuff all at once. And I think that's hard to do. So I think games like Pandemic and Flashpoint who use the other method, are certainly simpler. And I think if you're not going to do it, you still have to figure out a way to contain it to certain areas the way that Spirit Island and Eldritch Horror do. You know, I do want to say, I think there's another balance concern with the player turn, AI turn, player turn, AI turn system of doing things, like in Flashpoint and Pandemic, in that there can again be a major difficulty discrepancy between low player counts and high player counts because in a low player count game, you get frequent turns to address the particular area you're in, but a very high player count games, you have to deal with a lot of bad stuff potentially happening in your area before you get the chance to address it again. Right. 
So I think, I, I guess both of the main systems have, like, major potential pitfalls in balancing difficulty across player counts. Like, Flashpoint's a good example. I, I haven't played six-player, but I would imagine if I'm in one corner of the house and no one else is near me, and I'm the one kind of dealing with that corner, I have to face, you know, five additional fire rolls before I get a chance to deal with my corner again. I might be <laughs> inside of an entire blazing <laughs> room by that point, you know, which could be fun, I think. But, uh, yeah, it, it, again, presents some kind of balancing challenges, just like the other side. Right. But, you know, the other thing, too, is with, with Flashpoint, it's like one roll per, per character. But on something like Pandemic, you're drawing like three cards, four cards, five cards. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like it's even worse. You know, it's like, gosh, and you know, if I'm playing four players and there's like we're drawing all these cards, it's like <laughs> it's going to be horrible by the time it gets around to me. You know, there's, there's going to be 12 plagues by the time it gets to me. One well, pand- Pandemic and the Forbidden series are such a a hard balancing act. And I, I think it works pretty well. I still enjoy those mm-hmm. games, but cause it's not just the turns, like making the balance really hard to achieve, but also the fact that you're trying to do set collection, mm-hmm. but the sets are more distributed across players at higher player counts. And it's harder to get like cards to one person consistently. Yes. So yeah, I'm, I'm impressed that those are balanced at all. Cause <laughs> <laughs> kind of looking at them on paper, it's like these games should not work. Like it should be impossible to win with four player and impossible to lose with two player. And you know, it's, I think it's still a little bit easier or harder, but it's not that extreme. Well, and even if it's not easier or harder, and this is the problem I had with forbidden sky, I loved 99% of what I played in forbidden sky. But the frustrating part for me was that all these bad things happened at higher player counts before you got your turn again. And you could literally lose the game before you get your next turn. And I mean, probably not early in the game, but later in the game, you've done good things the entire game. You've done so well. And if you make one slip up based on luck of the draw, you could either be fine and nothing bad happens or you could lose in one turn. And that's the way our game worked. We were playing on the highest difficulty. And I talked about this a little bit in the Forbidden Desert episode, but that was a frustrating part for me. So I do think one of the negatives is not only can the difficulty become higher at higher player counts, but the swinginess can become higher and it can be more frustrating for your players. Now, a big thing we haven't talked about yet is downtime. And both ways of structuring turns, I think, have the potential for downtime problems. But I think it's much more likely to have a major downtime problem when it is one player turn, AI turn, another player turn, AI turn. Because waiting not only for all the other players to take their actions, especially if it's a game where you don't have much to contribute during somebody else's turn or you aren't invested in watching somebody else's turn, having to deal with them taking their turn and additionally them kind of you know, managing the AI activation, that that can lead to some pretty bad problems with uh, downtime. I think more commonly than in the all players go, all enemies go. Mm-hmm. Because at least with all the players going at once, you can kind of like have consistent conversations going. Because, you know, generally in games, most co-ops don't put much player choice into the AI phase. It's just kind of an automated thing. So you don't really have a chance to talk to each other. So kind of having that break up the player turns frequently, I think, can also contribute to to less player communication potentially. Let me throw out Shadows Over Camelot. That's an interesting one because the characters actually have agency in in the negative, right? You can give up a hero point or put out a catapult instead of drawing the bad card or 
I forget what else you can do. There's a couple things you can do to, to manage that. And that's a discussion point that actually becomes something in the game. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And then there's, hey, you know, you could be a bad guy. Maybe you're going to do something <laughs> uh, that throws a whole nother monkey wrench in it. So I, I just that's, you know, that's a classic in my book uh, because of that, because of those discussion points that happen uh, in between the turns about but what are we what are we going to do as a team here? What makes the most sense for us to do? So it, it adds agency to the decision for the for the team in the game. And I, th- I think that's a good design thing to throw in when you can in general for any of these kind of structures. Mm-hmm. Well, and two other games that are semi-co-op the way that Shadows of the Camelot is are Battlestar Galactica and Dead of Winter. Mm-hmm. And they both have those choices during enemy AI turns where do I want to contribute cards to this or not? Yeah. So it doesn't just become an enemy ai turn and certainly they do it by giving you potential traders in the midst but i think dead of winter does even a good job of giving you personal goals so some reasons you may not want to contribute even if makes more sense for the colony at that time and so i I would love to see more co-ops explore that where you have personal goals in there that make you potentially want to do something against the team even though you're not a trader you're just doing something for yourself as well as trying to help the colony succeed. Yeah. That's a good call. So do we have any other pros and cons? Anything we haven't discussed for the the two main methods before we kind of throw out a few other ways of handling activation and stuff? I think that's a good general overview. We could probably get deeper into each of these methods in their own individual episodes. But Patrick, did you have any other ones? I mean, obviously you threw out the Spirit Island one where you get to activate... Some people activate before, some people activate after. Even some of your actions could be before and after after the enemy AI. Mm-hmm. So that does it kind of uniquely. Are there any other ones you thought of? No, that, that's all I had on top of my head. Well, let, let's touch on Gloomhaven again because you had mentioned that. Because that, that for me kind of goes back to the classic RPG, like Dungeons & Dragons sort of initiative order thing. But in Gloomhaven, it shifts every turn. And something I really love about Gloomhaven is that... It is player-controlled. It's not a D20 roll to see if I move first or last in this turn, where a lot of games that have initiative, it's entirely randomized. Like Mice and Mystics, you just shuffle up the character cards and deal them out and see who's first and who's last. So yeah, Gloomhaven, like, if I play my fastest card, I have a very good likelihood of going first. Yeah. If, if I'm against, you know, a zombie, I can kind of count on their card being way late in the turn order. It's, it's kind of a variation, I guess, on player turn, enemy turn, because they might get shuffled up. But I like that. And, you know, I guess uh, Aeon's End is another variation. Yeah, I was going to get into that one next. Well, yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and talk about that, Peter? Yeah, so in Aeon's End, you have two enemy cards that get shuffled in with four player cards. Now, it doesn't matter how many players you have. There are always four player cards. So to some degree, it fixes the player count issue where number of players matters because the players are always going to have four actions to the enemies too. Now for that one, it actually frustrates me more than something like a Mice and Mystics where it's a similar thing where you're shuffling up all these cards and you're laying out a player order. But at least with Mice and Mystics, I can see the player order coming up where with Aeon's End, it comes up randomly. You're just flipping over a card. Who goes next? All right, flip over another card. See who goes next. So there can't be a lot of planning for who's coming up. And the thing that frustrates me even more with that, because you shuffle it between every round, is I can go first in one round and last in the next round. And so it's a long, long time between my turns. Mm -hmm. So that would be my biggest negative with a system like that where you're shuffling every turn, where I think if you're going to shuffle for initiative, something like Mice and Mystics, 
where at least the turn order is more consistent, I like better. And they even do neat things in there, like switching the turn order. Like maybe something's fast, so between every round, they move up one in the initiative track. I do like that better than something where you're just randomly drawing, all right, who's going to go next? Another one I wanted to discuss, and unfortunately I haven't seen this done much, and I'd like to design a game that uses this or... or find some other games that use it. The only game I can think of right now is uh, Red November, the the old, like, submarine saving game. Mm-hmm. So how that worked was you could do as much as you wanted, but you'd be moving your action marker along a time track, and whenever you reached certain spaces on the time track, the bad things would happen. So it was more like an accumulation of actions causing an enemy activation, but at whatever pace you wanted to make it happen... Instead of like an automatic you go, I go kind of a thing. And I feel like we see this mostly in competitive games. Uh, yeah. Like uh, the old Horus Heresy game, it's not in print anymore, that was by Fantasy Flight, would have it where you would like. Patchwork. Oh, yeah, that's right, Patchwork. Um, There's one other one I was thinking of. Thebes has it. Yeah, Thebes, uh, Conan uh, has it in, in a way. Stronghold does it too. You get tokens that you give the other person. Yes, yeah, yeah, Stronghold is yeah, so you see that it's all over the place in competitive games, and I think it works really well and makes some interesting decisions. But besides Red November, I can't, at least at this point, think of any co-ops that do it. Yeah. And, and I like the idea. I like the sort of predictability and like the tactical puzzle landscape it provides. So I'd like to see more games trying that out. Yeah, that would be interesting. I mean, I like, I really like that in, in competitive games. Yeah. I've seen that in lots of games and really enjoy that. I agree, I've never seen it in a co-op. Yeah, and Red November is not a very good game, so I would not recommend. <laughs> All right. I would not recommend picking it up just to see it in action. But uh, again, that's the only one I can think of. Well, as a game designer, it might be worth looking into if yeah. you're curious about how it works. It's not a very expensive game. I think it's like it's certainly in their small box game, so it's like twenty twenty five dollars probably. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's not in print anymore. Like I don't think that was ever a big seller for them, so you'd probably have to trade for it or find it somewhere. Now, the, the other one we haven't mentioned at all is real-time, which, of course, throws all of this completely on its head. Yes. Magic Maze. Yeah. Ma- Magic Maze is the one I was thinking of, or Space Alert, or uh, Five Minute Dungeon, or... Escape. 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 Yeah. Uh, the, the Space Cadets. And... Yep. In those games, the bad thing that's happening is the timer, typically. Mm-hmm. Right. So you will run into obstacles, but really you're just trying to accomplish things in a certain amount of time. Well, yeah, those games are really interesting, especially the ones that let you act freely, like Escape. You know, something like Space Alert, the timer is just an obstacle to you solving the puzzle perfectly. Like, if you had infinite time, you could solve it in the ideal way. And Five Minute Dungeon, again, like, you know, if you had infinite time, you could play your cards just the right way and maybe win it. But something like Escape, like, you can literally do more if you move faster. <laughs> you know, if you roll your dice faster, you can literally accomplish more than if you don't. And that's really interesting. I guess Magic Maze is the same way. Like, if you just, if you're just a well-oiled machine and you get stuff done faster, you will literally be better at the game, right. which I, I really enjoy. It adds a skill element, like pure dexterity skill that isn't in a lot of board games. Well, and Project Elite does it, too. It right. does it in shorter bursts. You have two minutes of real time, and then you have this planning phase, basically, where all the enemy stuff happens, all the bad stuff happens. So that is more like a shorter individual player's turn, even though everyone's acting simultaneously, and then a bunch of bad stuff happens. And then you have these short turns again, and then bad stuff happens. So that is more similar to a lot of these turn structures we've talked about, but 
a lot of the real-time games are just you just keep going and then maybe bad stuff it'll throw bad things at you a tale of pirates is the same way sometimes bad stuff will happen kind of in the middle of your run but for the most part you're seeing everything up front and then just racing against this timer to get as much of that stuff taken care of as you can you know, I'll bring up Space Alert again just because it's one of my favorites. That one's really interesting because the bad stuff doesn't really happen until you've played the entire game. And then you go back and find out how <laughs> bad it was. <laughs> you know, like, I've always been, uh, you know, Vlada Travadal does that sort of thing in Space Alert and in Galaxy Trucker. And, you know, we put that in the end game of Salvation Road mainly because I just love that mechanic. Some people hate it, but for me, I really like kind of putting the pieces together and then finding out if I survived. I like the tension that's inherent in that kind of way of designing stuff. So, yeah, Space Alert is kind of its own thing, even within the real-time genre. Cool. There was another category I actually thought of. Oh, go ahead. Um, Like Robinson, where it's just sort of the board order. I mean, you know what's going to happen. You you lay out your, your tokens the actions you want to take and they, the board order tells you the order that they're going to happen in. They just happen the way they're going to happen. You don't really have, I mean, there's cards you're going to flip over and, and randomness in the cards that happen when monsters come out or, or what storms sure. happen or whatever. Uh, but everything happens in a perspective manner every single turn. Yeah, that's a good point because at, at first when you mentioned Robinson Crusoe, I was thinking it's still kind of a like, player turns enemy turns structure because of like the events at the beginning but you're right like depending on what you roll depending on what cards you draw as you're exploring or whatever you might have some bad stuff just randomly pop up during your actions so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely that that is sort of an interesting variation like with the potential for bad things to interrupt your actions in a way right yeah, no, that's a very cool case, and it would be interesting to see if people could do that more often. I guess Dead of Winter tries to do that with the crossroad oh, cards yeah. as well, where your player actions are interrupted. And again, that's not a full co-op game, but at the same time, it does have a lot of co-op elements, and that's one of them. So that might be something interesting to explore as well, where the bad actions interrupt you, not randomly, but mm-hmm. somewhat randomly. Yeah. No, definitely. All right. Unless anybody else has a <laughs> great idea. <laughs> I think that uh, covers a lot of the possibilities for now. All right. So, Patrick, why don't you tell people where they can find you and a little bit about your show? Sure. I am best found on Twitter at Over the Hillier. Can you spell your last name just so they can definitely find you on Twitter? At Over the Hillier, H-I-L-L-I-E-R. Awesome. I am found over at uh, What Did You Play Productions, and we have various shows. Uh, right now I'm doing... Patrick and Eric in the morning, which is uh, my buddy Eric Buscemi and I doing just a little chat show, about a 30-minute show. Uh, we just recently did one on co-ops, among other things. Hey. And, uh, <laughs> that was a great show. Although Eric's wrong. Co-ops are awesome. Well, he talked about a few co-ops he likes. He just thinks he doesn't like them, but he's he's wrong, right? <laughs> That's right. They always, they always are. <laughs> and the main show uh, is now called The Shuffle. Uh, by the time this comes out, the new Shuffle show will come out. And then one of these days I might get back into doing heavier interviews on the conversation thing. And then I get around and do other things, guest, guest appearances here and there, like on shows like this. So I'm also found on The Cubist on Monday nights with Bill Corey. Uh, it's a live YouTube show at 9 Central, which is just a silly show where we talk to people live. And that, that I'm just a co-host on that. So that's a lot more fun because I don't have to do any editing or anything. Nice. Thanks, Peter, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and so I will say I love the conversation thing shows that you guys do. Thank you. I mean, anybody who's into wants to get into the industry or just interested in the industry, mm-hmm. the conversation things are great. You usually bring in an industry guest designer or something else talking about their projects, and you want to hear passionate people. People who design things and people who publish things and have new cool stuff coming out, yeah. they're so passionate about their projects because they've just put so much blood, sweat, and tears into each project. And we all know you don't always do your best work. It doesn't matter whether you're a designer or whether you're whatever else. People have good games. People have bad games. People do good at work some days and other days are like, gosh, I got absolutely nothing accomplished today while I was here. And so... These people, though, are are putting it all out there, and they're really telling you their story, and it's just so neat to hear these stories, and it's really inspiring for me as a designer to just listen to other people's journey. Great. I appreciate that feedback. All right. Well, thank you so much, Patrick, for coming on the show. It has been a pleasure to hear your your genius (laughs) and your just have some fun with you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-op Shop, and follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-OpCast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. And Patrick from What Did You Play Podcast Productions. What? You said it wrong, dude. (laughs) And Patrick from What Did You Play This Week Podcast Productions. There's no podcast. Dang it. (laughs) Take it again. Third take. So, Patrick, you're the guest. You want to take it away and talk about your number five? Hold on a second, Mike. What did I? Did you not want to do rules? Oh, God in heaven! I, well, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll keep that intro. That was that was gold, man. And that's about it. Those are the the core mechanics of the game. All right. So if you've never heard us before, welcome, you son of. A- I did this. All. <laughs> <laughs> You're taking me now, Dad. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so if. You- <laughs> Sorry, Patrick. No, I love to hear behind the curtain. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, the funny part is we're never this off the cuff. I mean, we're always off the cuff, but this is way above and beyond this week, so it's all good. We're not even wearing shirts. We're so off the cuff. (laughs) Um, And and best best, uh, screw up my speech late at night. Um, well, that's why we record late. Yes. We really want people to be at their worst. Hello, hello. All right, I'm in. I'm in. The package I'm is in. secure. Uh, you know, don't worry like, about your package being secure. Oh, come on. <laughs> that's a, I knew I, I should have picked a different word for that. Guess what? That's making the outtakes too, by the way. Uh, <laughs> talk about packages again, Peter. Got to get your head out of there. <laughs> so, all right so peter's so, package is secure sorry <laughs> no that's mike's package mike is mike's clear. package oh. dude, dude leave my package out of this i don't i don't need to know about all these packages <laughs> oh my gosh i mean i have I, right. I should tell the package story on the air because that was pretty crazy <laughs> there's an actual what, package you... story uh patrick oh okay complained about scythe not showing up and then 12 hours later it 
was in your front doorstep? <laughs> no, 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 that, that's not what happened. You, you didn't hear the real story, I guess. Well, you may as well tell it now. Yeah. Like, we're well, yeah, all right. anyway. Let's say, we're yeah, I mean, started. Ed- edit it in if you want to, wherever you want. Yeah, so, uh, so Patrick, I had ordered um, Scythe and the Fenris expansion and my little Scythe all arriving from Cool Stuff yesterday, theoretically. Right. And, you know, I've got two kids, so I had carefully mapped out the entire evening so that I would give my wife some time and get the kids down in a fatherly way and then still have some time to, you know, break out at least one of them and try out the Automa, because that's what I really wanted to do, like do the solo play with them. Sure. So, you know, I'm obsessively checking my FedEx tracking and at the front door (laughs) the entire day, basically. And it's like 7 o'clock, and I look, and it's like, oh, delivered on your front step at 645. I look out, and it's certainly not there, and a truck has never driven up, and no one ever knocked. And I live in a nice neighborhood. It's not like the kind of place where packages are routinely stolen. So I know that either something's gone wrong electronically or the package was left at the wrong place. So I figure out how to call FedEx, and they have to call, like, the local branch. And they're like, yeah, and then they have to call me back two hours later, and they call me at, like, 9.30. They're like, yeah, we're opening an investigation. Well... We will hopefully deliver it by Friday, and if not by Friday, <laughs> you have to call the seller and have them go through a whole rigmarole with us to, you know, get them refunded, and then they can send another copy. And I'm like, all right, great. So, so basically, what you're saying is I'll be playing Scythe in August, or not August? It is August. I'll be yeah. playing Scythe in October. You know, right? So I'm sitting with my wife watching Infinity War at like 10:45, and I get a call from num- some number I've never heard of, but. I'm like, well, nobody calls me this late. It must be something important. So I pick it up, and it's my neighbor two streets down. Like, not not even slightly similar street names. Two streets down, the exact same house number as me, saying, hey, I I got a really big package. I think it's yours. Because apparently this is is cool that it worked out this way. Apparently I gave FedEx my phone number, and it was on the package. So, uh, so I, I did get scythe and at least like got to sort through the bits last night and then I was able to play some today. So nice. it all worked out well, but man, I was, I was definitely in like board game hell with tragedy <laughs> on my mind, uh, late last night. So you were like, uh, I'll be right over. I know it's midnight, but I'm going to be at your house. In the <laughs> yeah. That's the best part. I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll get it tonight. Don't worry. <laughs> Just leave it on the front step. I'll get it. Yeah. And then, um, <laughs> Uh, we reached a good break point in Infinity War, and I was like, hey, sweetie, you know, you, you you need to get a shower, right? You don't want to be, like, up watching this movie until really late and then still have to get a shower afterwards. She's like, yeah, I guess so. I'm like, all right, well, I'll just go get the package while you get your shower. <laughs> <laughs> we did, yeah. And I didn't even, like, get yeah, in my car. Like, I was literally, like, sprinting down the sidewalk in a little bit of rain, like, in pitch black. And I was like, I hope I don't get jumped on my way back with this giant package. <laughs> That's great. That's what we call board game addiction right there. Yeah. Hey guys. Yeah. Do do you know what? I I think my computer's starting to smoke. <laughs> do, do do you think I should get out of here? Nah, man. Just uh, spend some action points. Get that sucker taken care of. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna do that. 